I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Interest in organic farming systems continues to grow due to high consumer demand as well as increased scrutiny on conventional inputs. A lengthy transition period to certification as well as the fact that organic production usually requires tillage discourages a lot of no-tillers from adopting the practice. The Rodale Institute, one of the leading advocates for organic farming in the U.S., is hoping to help farmers overcome obstacles with its consulting services, which have recently been expanded into the Midwest and other regions. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we chat with Leah Varek and Nick Podol, two recent additions to Rodale's consulting team, to learn more about the process of transitioning land to organic, how they work with farmers who are interested in adopting organic practices, the promise and challenges of organic no-till, why roller crimpers and cover crops are essential to the practice, and more. Today, we're talking with two new Midwest crop consultants with the Rodale Institute, Leah Vreck and Nick Podal. Rodale, of course, is a nonprofit based in Pennsylvania that has been expanding into other geographical areas, including California and Georgia. But our guests are working in collaboration with the Midwest Organic Center based in Marion, Iowa, uh, which was launched in 2019, I believe. So Leah and Nick, if you would, could you each just take a moment to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your backgrounds? Yeah, of course. So my name is Lea Verek and I um, grew up in France on the farm in northeastern France. My dad is a conventional grain grower, so I guess that's how I got the farming bug, is by growing up on the farm. That's not how I got the organic bug, obviously. <laughs> that one I got at school, so I went to school for agronomy, and then along the line decided that I was more interested in sustainable agriculture I think when we started talking about conservation agriculture is when I really got caught. The principles are the same as what is called the five soil health principle, which is permanent cover, uh, minimum soil disturbance, and um, crop rotations. And that really appealed to me right away. So I, I decided to pursue a master in agroecology to really dig deep into sustainable ag and, and different systems and I was lucky enough to uh, go to school in different countries in Europe. So I went to Germany and Norway, and it was really great to see different ag professionals there, but also be able to meet farmers in different countries and see that uh, farmers always kind of meet the same problems. It doesn't really matter where you are. Uh, the issues are very similar, which was kind of um, comforting in some way, but also kind of distressing because if the issues are the same, it means that they're really big and, and some are really hard to you know, get through. And so when I finished my master's, I worked with Dr. Silva at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And this is what I did for five years. I was her research assistant. So I was 
conducting all the research at the research station and, and on farms and also participating in all the extension effort that she um, does participate in. So I learned a ton, uh, did a lot of research on organic no-till, corn and soybeans, worked on other crops like small grains and hemp as well for two years. So I really learned so much from Erin, from doing the research and from all the people I met along the line, uh, wonderful farmers, amazing um, ag specialists and, and so on. And, and then in January of this year, um, I made the move to Rodale and kind of decided to become an organic crop consultant, which is something that I've been kind of interested in for a long time. At the moment, I work with farmers in Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Missouri. Okay. Nick, what about you? I grew up on, a, on an organic farm in Southeast North Dakota. Uh, my family's farm has been certified organic since 1977. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been doing it for a long time. It's the farming system that I grew up in and uh, that I grew up doing and know best. So I have uh, worked in uh, extension with the University of Minnesota most recently, and then also with NDSU. And uh, I guess my approach to consulting now is, um, is to sort of think about it in terms of what I did in extension and, and kind of transferring that to consulting. And that's really helping farmers that are transitioning to organic or that already are, are farming organically to be able to think about the system that they're creating and really kind of facilitate that shift in mindset that it takes to think about an organic system and be able to plan their crop rotations and integrate cover crops into that system and create the cultural controls that we need in order to make an organic system work. And I've been doing that all my life, so it's, uh, it's kind of second nature to me, but being able to take my educational background and uh, help other farmers think in those ways uh, it's kind of how I approach my work. I'm in Minnesota, so I have, you know, basically Minnesota, but a little bit into Iowa and then North and South Dakota. And I also have several farmers that I'm working with in Nebraska and Kansas as well. So can you just tell us a little bit about Rodale's farm consulting program? How did it come to be and what are its goals? Well, I think, you know, it, it came to be as uh, something that the Institute was thinking about for some time. I think our CEO, Jeff Moyer, had been doing a little bit of consulting along with uh, some of the researchers at different times, and they decided to formalize that service at some point. And so our, they hired our, our director of consulting, Sam Mulriat, and uh, he's in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania there at the, at the main headquarters. And we were brought on to help him expand into the Midwest. And yeah, so it started a couple of years ago, and it was initially funded by the Pennsylvania Department of Ag through the Farm Bill there, which is, uh, I think, very interesting that it started with public fundings. Um, and then from there, they really saw the need because they, they, were, they were getting just many, many calls in Pennsylvania and, and then started to get calls from all over uh, the country and then decided that there was a need for people over and, and identified the Midwest as a region that needed support. So I'd like to just ask you about certification. I gather that gets a little complicated. There are different types of certification and there are different certifying bodies. How are you approaching that aspect of it? Having some experience in, in that process and then being able to translate that for farmers who are going through that for the first time, it's uh, just kind of a different experience. I mean, people aren't generally used to 
other people coming onto their farm and doing inspections and things like that. And so kind of walking them through the paperwork process, but then also being able to prepare them for having that inspection and, and what all of that entails, what the inspectors are looking for. And uh, as, as long as they feel prepared for that, it's really not uh, as scary of a thing as it might sound like to start with. So generally the inspectors are, are looking for things, but they want people to be successful. Um, they're, they're really not coming on the farms to bring the hammer down. They want to come onto the farm and see that you're in compliance, but if you aren't in some areas, you know, you're given chances to uh, sort of come into compliance with those things. And they're not, they're not there to, to just see what you're doing wrong. So they, they're really uh, there to help you succeed as well. So. Yeah. I feel like the way we approach that with farmers is they usually are super stressed about it and feel like it's such an overwhelming process and they don't really know where to start. Um, there are a lot of different certifiers, uh, certifying agencies. Some of them are, are uh, from the state. Some of them are just independent organizations. So that's also um, can be very confusing. Which one do I pick and why do I pick it? So we, we kind of try to help farmers um, choose the certifier or like give them a list of uh, certifiers who already work in their area. So they don't have to like send an agent just for them, but they already have clients there. It's usually a good way to go to like pick a certifier and sometimes depending on the type of operation you have, you know, the size of the operation, whether you have livestock or not, um, we can give some recommendations on which certifier to pick. And that's, that's kind of usually the first step. And, and after that, you just have to, you know, pay attention to everything you do, the seed you plant, um, how you clean your equipment between your fields. Um, and those are things that we always kind of go over with farmers and, and just us like listing the things that they have to like keep track of and giving them you know templates and such usually certifiers have their own templates make them feel more comfortable about it a lot of them also like to kind of have like a mock inspection which is something we can do with them um before the actual inspection we can just go through it together so they go like less stressed the day of the inspection it's a lot of stress as nick said to have like someone come to your farm and kind of look at all your papers and, and how you keep track of everything. It's, it's very personal how, how everyone is like organizing their daily lives. It's kind of bizarre to be audited on, on your personal record keeping. I'm sure every or operation is a little different, but can you sort of outline the process of transitioning to organic or organic no-till? There's also the whole regenerative organic no-till. Where does that fit in? So once you once you've decided that you're going to make that transition, it's that three year transition period, like I said, and then you've got to uh, start working on trying to find a certifier and uh, that that you want to work with, and you work with them kind of over that that three year transition period to get ready for that first inspection and becoming certified in that third year. It's not something where a farmer wouldn't decide to go organic, start implementing. And then a couple of years, two years later, find a, a, a certifier. They really have to get that nailed down right away. You could wait if you wanted to, but I always, and you probably, you could still get certified doing it that way. But I always, I guess, advise to be in contact with the certifier that you're going to work with through the whole process, um, because it makes it a lot easier to be able to come into compliance and, and know exactly what you're doing. Uh, and have the practices in place that that certifier wants to see when they when they come in for an inspection. 
And for, yeah, for the regenerative organic certification, which is, uh, I mean, regenerative is used as a word uh, to describe all sorts of different systems, but there is now a certification actually um, with uh, rules like the organic uh, certification, and it's an add-on to the organic certification. So you have to be organic first to qualify for uh, the regenerative organic certification. And, And we do also advise farmers who want to go down that route and, and what it entails in addition to organic, uh, it goes you know, beyond in terms of practices. So in terms of soil health, there is a little bit more in it. And then there, there are like actually kind of three pillars to it. And the other ones are animal, animal well-being and also social, a social aspect. So how much you pay your workers and, and such um, are also included in the regenerative organic uh, certification. And it's kind of the same process where you have to like document everything and then go through an inspection. And so what types of operations is Rodale working with in the consulting program? Well, we're working with any operation, any size, really. Um, you know, we, we work with even some smaller vegetable growers. Um, uh, we also work with, uh, with livestock and, and uh, with larger grain operations as well. So any and all inquiries that we get, we're happy to respond to. Um, and we, we sort of do pride ourselves on that and, and being responsive to, to everybody and, and not really discriminating at all, you know, depending on the operation or the size of your operation. So. so can you just sort of walk us through, give us a general idea of how you go about working with farmers in the program? And um, how is it different from working with other types of consultants? I would say the main difference is that uh, we we don't just work with agronomy. We you know we also help with the certification process and all of the other things that go along with an organic system. We don't just focus, I guess, on the agronomy for this year's crop. Again, we're looking at an entire system here, so we're always looking at crop rotations and cover crops that will come, you know, before and after, and how that's going to affect the cash crop that comes after it and, you know, thinking long-term about how the system is going to work. So it's a little bit different in that as we're not just kind of focused on this year's crop with this year's inputs. Uh, it's really a whole system and we're looking at multi years at the same time. So. And the way we usually go, or I like to go about it is to first like listen to what the person has to say about their operation, what their goal is. And not only we work with a broad variety of different farm sizes, but also different goals and different places where farmers are at. Uh, So understanding the level of knowledge um, on organic farming and also the short-term, long-term goals is, I think, very important in in the work that we do. Uh, So I guess we all kind of do the same where the first talk that we have with the person is just one hour of getting to know the operation and, and the goals and then from there seeing where we're going to be able to help them the most. And sometimes it's just with a certification process. Sometimes they're just amazing agronomists and they don't even need any help or just someone to like bounce ideas off of. Um, oh, I would like to try this. But, you know, sometimes we get kind of all like caught up in our own heads and, and it's kind of complicated to not have anyone to talk to. And some, some farmers just like to have that second ear, that other voice in the conversation. And, and yeah, for some of them, they've just never done it. They, they really need us to like walk them through like a whole like 
growing season, like how do you grow organic corn? How do you grow organic soybeans? When do I cultivate? What type of equipment do I need? So yeah, the, the questions are very varied. And I think that's also what makes the job really interesting. And yeah, of course, uh, none of us knows everything. <laughs> and I think the, the strength that we have is that we are a team and we really work together. So we all have different expertise. Um, it's five of us now. And I would say when someone has access to us as consultant, it's not one person, it's really the whole team. And we really ask questions to each other um, if we need support and then also don't hesitate to like, reach out to other people. I'm so glad I developed such a big network here uh, before taking that position. And people in organic systems are usually pretty willing to help, whether it is people at UW um, or other universities or other farmers even. Okay. And so I'm curious, of course, Rodale is focused on organic production, but if a farmer wants to work with you to learn about the techniques and practices, but not, doesn't necessarily want to get certified, say, because they want to have that option of using herbicides in their toolkit, will you still work with them or do they really have to be committed to that transition process? I would say we'd still work with any farmer. We like to of course, get farmers to that point. Our goal is to try to transition as many acres to organic production as we can. We do talk about that all the time, that that's really our express goal. But I think there's sort of a continuum uh, and, and you have to work with people that are that are on sort of a broad, you know, kind of spectrum of, of, of where they're at in the process. And maybe Maybe they're not ready to to start transitioning acres to organic yet, but if they're interested in, you know, integrating cover crops and and different aspects of an organic system into like a conventional no-till system, for instance, eventually I think that farmers will find that when they start implementing all those practices into their system, that the less reliance they'll have on synthetic inputs and 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 chemicals. And once they get to a point where they're using very little of those things, then it becomes easier to think about the, making an actual transition to organic production. And I think that's sort of the continuum that we see farmers on. I think, you know, no-till farmers especially uh, are, you know, much closer to being able to make that jump to an organic system if they would like to at some point. And so we love to talk to people and work with people who are interested in, in maybe doing that at some point, but working with, with people where they're at now is, uh, that's kind of a hallmark of extension. Uh, and that's where my background comes from is, is in extension too. And working with people where they're at is, is always a, a good thing. So I understand that a lot of operations uh, will have some of their acres in organic and some of them in conventional, that sort of thing. Is that something that you see a lot? Yeah, especially on larger scale. And I think it's a really good strategy because, you know, diversity comes in different things and diversity in terms of uh, marketing is is great when you have a split operation. And, and I think one of the limitations, but it's not really a limitation, but something that you just have to think about and work through is that you really have to document well how you split those two operations, how you, you know, go from one field to another with the same piece of equipment or your store your grain or such things. But it's definitely something we see quite often in the Midwest. Yeah, I think from an economic standpoint, that can be a really smart approach. Um, and especially when you're first starting to make some transition, transition at least some acres to organic, 
we don't generally recommend that, especially if a large number of acres that you just transition it all at once. Doing it piece by piece, I think, is a smarter approach. And so we see we do see a lot of split operations and whether they stay split long term is another thing. Eventually, they might transition all their acres. But I think that's a good approach, at least to, to begin with. Is it easier for a farmer who does no-till to transition to organic than somebody who does conventional tillage? Or is it more of a mindset? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's easier in some way. It's easier because just people are used to using cover crops and cover crops are essential in organic. So I think that's, that's going to be easier for them. That's, that's a big reason why it's going to be easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I could see it being more complicated is that Usually they have been no-tillers for 20 years um, and and having to reintroduce some amount of tillage on their land is not something that they really want to do. And, and that's that's where I guess it gets complicated, but it's more of a pretty a mental barrier and understanding how tillage can affect soil health and how uh, there has been multiple studies that came out very recently showing that you can um, achieve optimal soil health with some amount of tillage um, if you combine it with cover crops. You know, if you till some bare ground over and over again, of course you're destroying all your soil structure, you're gonna have a lot of erosion and such. But if you just till in a large amount of cover crop, the impact is just not gonna be as dramatic. And on the long term, you can still achieve, again, optimal soil health. So I guess it's, the issue is going to be maybe less on the technical, but more on the mindset. So what amount of tillage are, you, are people doing when they're doing sort of reduced tillage organic production? I think you try to do, I think it ends up being some tillage in terms of the cover crops, mostly when you're doing reduced tillage. And I think incorporating those a lot of times is becomes kind of the thing that you have to do and then to prepare a seed bed for the next cash crop. But uh, typically we see like uh, when when we're able to come in after a small grain, for instance, and and put in cover crops, you know, a lot of times we can no-till those in. And if we can, if it's something where we can use a roller crimper to terminate and plant no-till in the next year, you know, we can sort of get some of these systems where you can go without tillage for you know, up to a couple years or three years or something like that, maybe uh, if you can create a system like that, and then maybe you might have to have another tillage event. Um, but if, like Leah said, if, you know, if your tillage events are that few and far between, um, you're still, you're still building your soil health. Um, and when we, when we do have a tillage event, typically we like to uh, have you know, either another cover crop or a, a cash crop planted on it almost immediately afterwards. So you're never really leaving the soil bare. And that's really still the principle, uh, even though you're doing some tillage. And so, you know, your soil microbial community gets a little bit hurt by tillage, um, but you, you might give them a bad day. I've heard Jeff Moyer say this, you might give them a bad day, but they'll rebound really quickly as soon as you put another crop right back on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, again, you're still building your soil health over the long term. And that's really, I guess, what the goal is mm-hmm. uh, of no-till in the first place. So mm-hmm. um, if you have to compromise on that principle of no-tillage uh, every once in a while and rarely, uh, I think that's, that's still to the benefit when you're doing an organic system and you're able to 
eliminate the chemical and synthetic inputs that also do some harm to that soil microbial community. Um, I think in the long term, you're, you're better off there. And so what would that primary piece of equipment be that they would need in order to do that sort of tilling the, the cover crop under? Going from a no-till system to, to taking that on, what, what's the main kind of thing that they would need to incorporate? I think a lot of times it's, uh, it's just a good disc. You can, you can really incorporate most cover crops with a disc. If you've got, you know, something with really high biomass, um, you might have to, you know, make multiple passes over that. And then, you know, preparing a, a seed bed after that is, is where you get into, you know, making those, those multiple passes. And then it's, it's coming back with maybe a tined weeder to do some blind cultivation after you've created that seed bed after planting to really take care of, you know, any little weeds that are just starting to germinate um, before your crop comes up, you know, to go over it with a tine weeder or something like that. And that's really like, I don't, you know, I mean, it's tillage, but it's, it's like an inch into the ground. You know I mean? It's, it's really almost, you not really count that as tillage. So Again, and you try to make those events as rare as possible in your system. You try to create as much of a no-till system as you can until you do have to incorporate a cover crop or something. Another no-till pass that you can add to help the disking is to mow it first. If you have a bigger cover crop, it can help sometimes to just mow it. I've heard the term stale seedbed technique. Is that something that you're doing? Yeah, it's, it's highly used in organic to kind of mimic planting was a tillage pass, so it stimulates weed growth and then come back and terminate those weeds before planting the crop. Gotcha. Yep. And it's it's definitely something that farmers have to like keep in mind and play with that rhythm of um, moving the ground, weeds growing, and then putting their crop in between that. And when they're going to do cultivation, think about that as well. You know, the last pass of was the fill finisher. How do I time that compared to my first pass of um, tine weeding, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, timing gets critical. That's that's really something that you have to to learn in, in in an organic system too. It's something you have to get familiar with for your soils and and again for the weed the specific weeds that you have to deal with on your farm, and then also just where you live and the climate that you live in too. So. We'll get back to Leah Varek and Nick Podol in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Now, let's get back to Leah and Nick. So Leah, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about the organic no-till stuff that you've done in the past. You worked really closely with Aaron Silva at UW-Madison. So can you just fill us in a little bit on what you were doing there and tell us about some of the most impactful things that you learned about making organic no-till work? Yeah, I would say it. It is a small segment of the farming population that's doing it, but it's a lot of people who call us. It's a, we have a lot of um, no-tillers who call us and want to go organic, but they want to go cold turkey organic no-till, which I always hate to be the carrier of bad news, but um, I think the answer is always that if you want to go fully organic, you're going to have to till at some point or another. Um, 
And, and I really hate to say that, and I wish we had um, better systems. Um, but from the research I conducted with Dr. Silva, so a lot of it was focused on organic no-till soybeans, so rolling down uh, cereal rye um, and planting soybeans directly into it, which is a system that works pretty reliably or worked pretty reliably for us at the research station. But it takes a lot of moving things around in your rotation because you really have to plan for it. In most uh, states in the Midwest, you would, you would not be able to harvest corn for grain before doing so. Um, because corn is harvested a little too late uh, to be able to have a good enough stand of rye um, after that for um, to obtain good weed control through the entire growing season of the soybeans. Um, and after uh, the no-till soybeans, it's also hard to grow wheat um, for grain because you will have rye regrowth that may contaminate the winter wheat. Um, and then you may get your lot rejected at the elevator. So a lot of things to think about. The system itself, you know, taken on its own, uh, is something that I have been, I've been focusing on for five years and I had no failures. It worked every year. You know, the yield was either the same as regular tilled soybeans or a little under, you know, five bushels under or something like this. So I would say it's, it's a good system that does work. But if you look at the big picture, it gets a little more complicated and you really have to commit to it. And the other crop that we worked a lot on is corn, <laughs> but corn is super complicated to get in a no-till system and we haven't found anything that worked. We tried so many different cover crops into which we planted corn. We tried spring planted cover crops like uh, chickling vetch or field peas. Uh, we also tried mixes with clovers and buckwheat. But here, um, at least in Wisconsin, the spring planted crop is just not going to put enough biomass on and if it does, you know, those legumes will kind of decay really fast, like peas and chicken veg, and they will not provide weed control for the whole growing season. Corn doesn't need weed control for, for protection for as long as soybeans, because it closes canopy quicker than soybeans. But yet, uh, it still does need a good amount of weed control in the, in the beginning. And we also tried um, winter planted cover crops, like mixes of rye and veg. Um, like winter peas as well, but winter peas never really overwinter here. There are new varieties now that may work, uh, but, but I feel like with the, the climate changing a little bit, uh, we get less consistent snow cover. And I think snow cover is very important and actually helps us a lot. It's better than freeze and thaw and ice sheeting, for example, for an overwintering cover crop. And we've also tried um, perennial, I would call it living mulches, like medium red clover that we, we planted with a small grain and then tried to plant no-till corn into it. And that also presents a lot of challenges because um, clover uh, comes back when you crimp it or when you mow it or when you flame it, um, comes back stronger sometimes and is very competitive with the corn. And so Arian and, and others are continuing to work on that and, and hopefully they will find a system that does work. The Rodel Institute is also you know, conducting a lot of research on that topic and actually our partners on the big grant uh, was with Erin researching organic no-till corn and soybeans. So I guess the take-home message is that I am more than willing to work with farmers to, on implementing organic no-till soybeans on their farm if they're willing to like acknowledge that they have to move the rotation around for that to work uh, consistently. But for the organic no-till corn, um, I like to have farmers experiment on a few acres, but I don't think I would ever 
advise anyone to go organic no-till corn with any combination of cover crop on large acreage at this moment. Okay. And I would add, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Okay. So two follow-up questions on that. One is uh, with the soybeans that you were talking about, the organic no-till soybeans and the rye. Was there sort of a date that you need to have that rye planted by in order to make that system work? Yeah, in, in South Central Wisconsin, I would say that's the first week of October. It's sometimes, the first week of October is a little bit pushing it some years. And you never know if you're going to have a mite fall or not. But if the fall is mild, you can plant a little later. If the fall is very cold, you can't plant later because the rye won't have any time to tiller in the fall, which fall tilling is really important in that system um, for spring uh, weed control. So yeah, so central, South Central Wisconsin, first week of October. If you go down in Illinois, I guess the second week of October, third week maybe, maybe if you go very far south, but... Um, I like to be a little conservative with yeah. that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because I know the farmers are always going to push it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and then the other question about that is you talked about moving the rotation around. Can you just give an example of what that might mean? So usually um, it will mean adding a crop in the rotation. Okay. It's going to be tough to have just a corn, soybean, wheat rotation and have no-till soybeans into it because there need to be a crop that has that is a shorter season crop in there so you can reliably plant uh, rye after. So that could, be, um, that could be the small grain. You can plant rye after wheat and that does work. Some farmer make it work. But if you start thinking and laying things out on paper, it becomes obvious pretty quickly that you have to add a third crop in the rotation. And that's really the tough part for you know, marketing reasons. Um, if, if you can grow something, you can market. Um, farmers just don't want to do that. And I understand why they don't want to just have like a fallow year or a year with just cover crops that they can't make any money out of it. Mm -hmm. But if you're able to market something like buckwheat or peas that are, you know, shorter season crops, that's going to be very helpful to have that in the rotation to add the no-till soybean system. So I wanted to get back to the consulting program. Um, what are some of the main things that farmers are looking for guidance on other than the transitioning or the certification? Some things that they might be looking for, sometimes we give some advice on equipment, different types of equipment that maybe we need to use in an organic system. If they're doing a little bit of tillage, you know, some, some guys getting back into doing some cultivation again, you know, that it, it does take some, some skill to run a cultivator. It's not uh, necessarily the easiest thing. And getting it set up right, is, it's, it sounds simple, but it can be actually pretty complicated depending on your row spacing and all that stuff. What sort of issues are people having with that? It takes some operator skill to run a cultivator through a field. It's constant attention and you have to sit kind of backwards in your tractor and watch all the time and it uh it's not a fun thing to do really it's a little uncomfortable it it does take a little bit of operator skill so people just getting used to doing that stuff um and because uh, we you know we haven't done a lot of cultivating corn in the midwest for for a number of years now and a lot of farmers just aren't uh, familiar with doing a lot of that um so getting into doing some of that also using uh, some other tools like a rotary hoe or a tie and weeder, those are some pieces of equipment that, you know, maybe they're not familiar with as well. So learning how to use those, the timing of when to use them at different crop stages, uh, it makes a big difference as well. So 
give some advice on on that so they can familiarize themselves with with some of those pieces of equipment and be able to use them effectively. I think uh, the other thing is is like Leah was talking about different crop rotations. Um, thinking about adding another crop in there uh, in the crop rotation. I like to have. I do like to see at least four crops in a rotation typically. Uh, and so helping with uh, some marketing things um, is something that we do quite a bit of too, trying to help find buyers for different types of crops. And there are those opportunities um, in the organic marketplace. There's more demand. Once you get to certified organic, there's a little bit more demand for some of those different types of crops. So that helps a little bit, but you know, sometimes the, the buyers are kind of regional and um, you have to be able to kind of tap into a network there and, and try to help farmers find find buyers sometimes that are not too far away typically. So, mm-hmm. I would also add two other things that we get a lot of questions on. One is cover crops, um, very like very questions on it. Which one do I plant? Uh, when do I plant it? How do I terminate it? Can I terminate it without tillage? So tons of questions on that. Which one do I use as well? Uh, seeding rates, equipment used for planting it and terminating it, um, and also what are the what are the benefits? Which benefits am I going to see using a cover crop? And explaining the nutrient release and nutrient uh, tie up from cover crops um, is something that we uh, usually have to go over. The second one is also kind of connected as nutrient management, so it really goes well with the cover crops. Um, I feel like a lot of uh, farmers sometimes think that they're going to plant a legume and the nitrogen is going to be readily available or they don't really know when it's going to be available. And we don't have a straightforward answer by any means because we don't know exactly when it's going to be available, but we can give like timelines and tips on like what cover crop um, to plant and when to terminate it to help that nutrient cycling and also trying to help with sources of manure and other um, sources of nutrients there are not a ton of products available. And I think we try not to advise uh, on using product, but really using the system and building your nutrients in your soil with um, green manure and animal manure. Um, but sometimes we get questions on um, starter fertilizers, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, and then I, I, I know that uh, with organic pesticides, I mean, that must be something that comes up. Uh, some people I, have the impression that pesticides aren't used in organic, but of course they are to a certain extent. They're just naturally based. Um, but I am kind of curious, what is the general approach to to pesticide recommendation? The general approach is, is really not to use them uh, unless you absolutely have to. Um, you want to create a system where the cultural controls are in place that uh, you have that system working for you so you don't need to use those things. Um, they can be very expensive to use. Those types of inputs aren't cheap and especially not ones that are approved for organic systems. And they're also not as effective as uh, ones that uh, conventional growers have access to. And so it's really about trying to create a system that works. And if you have to use something like that, typically it's for a pest control type situation where um, that, that we usually see an input like that used um, if you absolutely have to. And we try not to really use many um, of them at all in terms of fertility and weed control. We try to really use the system for those. 
Okay. Yeah, and as Nick said, they're usually pretty expensive and they're not that many available. If you think about herbicides, herbicide, I don't even know how many there are, but there are really not that many of them. And, and the last one that kind of came out was uh, taken away from the organic uh, certification. And I don't, I don't know what the status is on that. So herbicide, there are not that many options. And we don't really get too many questions on them, actually. Working with Erin, we wanted to do some trials on organic herbicides to see their efficacy on different weeds. I think one place where they could be used is uh, for spot applications. I wouldn't do any kind of broad application of an organic herbicide because they're just too expensive per acre. But if something was to work really well, let's say on thistle, for example, and you have a little patch of thistle in your, in your field, then you could easily spray it and stop it from spreading around. So if one of them you know, becomes available and it's really efficient, those are the conditions in which I would uh, feel comfortable recommending the use of a herbicide. In terms of insecticides and fungicides, th there are little more options than for herbicides. But again, they're going to be um, really expensive and you have to use them in very specific conditions because they don't have like a long duration of um, being um, being active um, on, on the bugs or the fungus that you're trying to target. We used a little bit of it um, at the research station when I was working with Dr. Silva when we were doing trials in no-till corn because we had issues with armyworms. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we used some, some herbicides, but there are you know, some very specific conditions during which you have to apply it. And it only works for a few hours and, and it's also very expensive. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I haven't even gotten many questions. I feel like the products I get the most questions on are more the biologicals, or there is something that is called Blue End that is supposed to help uh, corn or other crops kind of produce their own nitrogen. I don't want to say something wrong. I don't know exactly how the product works, but it's, it's supposed to help with nitrogen availability for the crop. And, and I know some people who have tried it. I don't have experience with it myself, so I always feel a little uncomfortable until there is like a good research project that's been done on it that's proving, you know, how much it's actually helping. I like to base my recommendation of what the research uh, is showing or, or what the farmer has researched on his farm and I'm aware of his practices and know how he does um, his research on his farm. Then I feel more comfortable advising on things, but... Otherwise, um, you know, it's kind of try it and, and tell me how it worked. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. And what did you call that product, the nitrogen for corn product? What was it? Blue N. Blue N. Okay. It's not just for corn, it's for any crop really. But. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask if there was much interest in biologicals in the organic space. Yeah, and there is interest in biologicals, and, and it's something that I also don't have any experience with. Uh, I've done a little bit of research on soil microorganisms and and there is an overwhelming uh, amount of information that we don't have and so much, <laughs> so much knowledge to gain in that field. And I'm so glad some people are doing a ton of great research on it. But um, it's super hard to advise on those products. Like, yeah, maybe they work. I mean, you know, the idea of um, the soil microorganisms helping you and helping the ground and the plant is, yeah, this is true. But whether adding them when you plant uh, is going to help you or not. I don't really know. Okay, so I also wanted to ask about the roller crimper. I know it's obviously really important in organic no-till, and Jeff Moyer, the CEO of Rodale, has been active 
in developing the roller crimper for many years. He even came out with a book recently all about the different roller crimpers out there. So I was just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the latest developments in roller crimpers. If a farmer's kind of interested in looking for one, what should they be looking for? Yeah, we worked with different models at the research station and I thought it was really great to be exposed to those models like firsthand and kind of think about which one would I pick if I if I had to choose one. And I think one of the main questions is what is the size of the operation and what budget do you have? How much are you going to actually use it? Because the price can definitely vary. So the the, the model that was uh, designed by Jeff Moyer, um, the Rodale Roller Crimper, was the Chevron pattern, which is usually manufactured by ING Manufacturing. It's probably on the now like cheaper end of the spectrum. It's just a very simple piece of equipment. It comes in different width. Usually it's different sections of 15 feet wide each that are added next to each other or 10 feet wide. And then the fancier, more uh, recent development is the Dawn ZR ZRX roller crimper, which has um, the advantage of being more adaptable to the topography of the field. Um, so it's different uh, sections of rollers that can more adapt um, if the field has, you know, slope or bumps or whatsoever, um, it adapts more to, to the field. Um, and that's also mounted on the planter um, because it uses hydraulic down pressure. It's obviously a little more expensive to have it on your planter, but if you're going to do a lot of acres and you can afford it, I would definitely say that this is a great option for you. And then we also worked with um, McFarland Manufacturing. Uh, so they're from Wisconsin, actually. And they started developing an, a different type of roller crimper of their own. And I have no idea if it's commercialized yet and what the price of it will be. But because it doesn't have any sort of hydraulic, it's probably going to be in the same price range as the INJ. I would assume I really have no idea of it. <laughs> and it, it's a little bit different in the design. I think the, the blades are a little sharper. Uh, so sometimes they can even cut uh, the, 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 the cover crop um, instead of just crimping it. It's really, yeah, it comes down, I think, to the topography of the field, like you were saying with the Dawn one. You know, I guess in terms of, you know, deciding how wide you want to go and things like that, you know, if you've got a lot of difference in topography, probably want to go with less width and it's it's going to take you know more passes unless you go with the, the one that's mounted on the planter but yeah I mean that would be I guess my just as a farmer looking at it that would be some one of my main considerations too is what is how flat the field is and what what I would have to deal with in order to get an effective crimp on that on that cover crop to make sure it's terminated fully. Yeah, and those three that I talked about are the only ones that I've worked with, but I've seen others on farm, even other like actual roller crimper models. And and the three that we trialed at the research station, they all they all work equally well. Like we had no problem terminating our cover crops with either of the crimpers. But as far as using like different equipments, I know farmers who started uh, using just the drill. So they would just go over the rye with the drill to crimp it. I would just be concerned that you don't get... Uh, the best termination and the biggest concern here is having rye grow back the following year or having rye um, keep drawing moisture from the ground during the growing season. So those would be concerns if, if you're new, using equipment that's not made for that. Just make sure it actually does work. Mm -hmm. Okay. And with all your research that you did on planting green into cereal rye and terminating it with the roller crimper, all of that, you, have, you learned some very specific things about 
when you have to terminate it and that vernalization process that the rye has to go through. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for uh, terminating. So if you if you terminate a grass like rye or triticale or wheat, you would have to wait until uh, the crop reaches anthesis, which is when uh, it releases anthers and pollen, uh, which is the flowering stage for a grass, actually. And it's it's kind of, you know, sending signals. It's the rep- reproduction stage. So oh, I'm, I'm reproducing now and I can die. So it's going to die more easily if you crimp it after that for just that reason. Um, <laughs> it's a very simple explanation of a complex biological process, but you have to wait for that stage. And I would go until like the very end of anthesis when it enters into even the milk stage, um, I think is a better time than going too early if you want to get a perfect termination. And if you're terminating um, a legume, Going towards the end of flowering, the early pot stage, for example, for vetch, is when you want to go for uh, those legumes, like the end of flowering, which is the same. You know, that's when the reproductive stage has uh, started and it's going to be easier to terminate those crops at that point. Mm-hmm. As far as planting green, we've tried to plant into the standing rye and crimp a little after to get a, a little bit of an earlier planting date for the soybeans, but we haven't seen a big advantage of doing that in Wisconsin. And I think it's because the soil temperatures stay too low for too long. If we were in a little bit of a warmer place, we could see an advantage of doing that. But in Wisconsin, we haven't seen any advantage of planting, you know, 15 days before antheses and crimping after. The consulting services are relatively new, but what sort of results are farmers that you're working with having? Well, I'd say they're, you know, being able to successfully move through a transition and become certified organic is, I mean, that's a successful result for us, for sure. But but also just being successful in the, the agronomic systems that they're creating on their farms. And every every farm's system is, is special and, and different. And it really is this kind of shift in, in mindset and, and there's a whole thought process that, that comes with that. Um, and so uh, I think farmers are, they become better farmers through the process. Uh, they're thinking about more things about their operation and uh, they're really creating a system that's tailored to their farm and the specific challenges that they are, that they have on their acres it's when they're successful in that, it's, it's really a, a testament to, you know, the, the, the spirit and the adaptability of, of those farmers uh, to really take on that challenge of doing that. And uh, I, I love to see people that have created those systems that are successful. Like I said, each one is special and, and different in its own way. And it's really neat to me to see, to see that. It, it makes my job really interesting and, and it makes it a little bit harder at the same time, because like I said, there's no silver bullet that I can tell people like this farmer does this system and it's going to work for you. I can't say that. But at the same time, there's there's something special about creating something for yourself that that works for you and, and on your acres. And, and I think that's really neat. So, yeah, as you said, we haven't been around. I, and Nick and I just started in January, so it's a little bit hard. But um, if we think about Sam and Emily, who has have been working in Pennsylvania for a little longer, they have uh, farmers um, who have been working with them since the very beginning and people who have, you know, successfully transitioned uh, their land. So I guess that's what we can call success and 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 then in the in the longer term having people who actually can say you know i've transitioned but not only that i've been organic for five years now is something that i'm really looking forward to 
That's great. And I understand that these services might be free for farmers, at least for a limited time or something. Is that something you can address? Yeah, so we try, in general, we try not to rely on uh, fees paid by farmers for us to function. We try to get as much funding from other sources, grants or private donations to cover our, you know, the, the just functioning fees, our salaries and, and the fees associated with traveling to farms and such. So for the moment, we have some funding to cover some states in the Midwest and we're able to work with farmers uh, for free, but it's, you know, it's not going to be forever and it's not everywhere. Uh, but we also try to, to keep our fees really low and be very accommodating. Um, we just don't want it to become the reason why a farmer doesn't work with us because they can't afford us. That's really something we don't want to have to see. And so we try to identify those situations and find ways to, to fund those relationships. Well, that was pretty much all of my questions. Uh, is there anything that else that you'd like to add? Yeah, I would encourage people to go on our website to see uh, who we are. We have a little bio on it. Um, there is another consultant also working in California that we didn't mention. So we're starting to cover the South a little bit. We're hiring someone in Georgia as well. And yeah, just encourage to go on our consulting webpage um, to see who we are and where we're located and the services that we offer. Great. Yeah. If you have questions about, if you're thinking about transitioning some acres to organic, uh, get a hold of us. You're not alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This has been really great. I appreciate it so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks to Leah Varek and Nick Podal of the Rodale Institute for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.